want to preach to you a sermon this evening. I announced it this morning, but the sermon is entitled, The Makeup of a Man of God. If there's anything that the modern church needs, there's probably a lot of things that the church needs. We probably just need to get back to our first love. We probably just need to fall back in love with the one who loved us and, and abide in that love and love him for who he is and how good he is and the grace that he gave us. If, if the church could probably just return back to that, it would make a world of difference in this world. But I would say probably just second to that, one thing that our church needs and churches all over the world needs are godly men. My fear is, as I say that, there might be some who would kind of shut me out because you may not fall into that category of a godly man. And I hope tonight to dispel that logic. I hope that you understand tonight that no matter who you are in the room, you can be a godly man. 1 Timothy chapter number 6, verse 11, the Bible says, But thou, O man of God, Flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now, I probably caught some of you off guard by saying anybody can be a man of God. And I do not take back what I said because anybody can be a man of God. You see, this is obviously not an age-specific thing. You know, we consider boys to not quite be men. But doesn't Paul write to Timothy and said, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an ensample to the believers? So youth is not an automatic disqualification of being a man of God. I believe our teenagers can be men of God. You see, I want you to notice in verse number 11, Paul does not say, but thou who art becoming a man of God. Timothy was already a man of God. Youth does not disqualify you from wholeheartedly seeking after God. Timothy was already doing that. And you say, well, Brother Andrew, I can think of somebody that can't be a man of God. I can think of a lot of women in the church that can't be men of God. I want you to take your Bible to 1 Peter, chapter number 3. I'll begin reading in verse number 1, and in just a moment, I need everybody to follow along, because just in a moment, I'm going to ask you to read something aloud with me. 1 Peter chapter number 3, verse number 1 says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives." While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair or or wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be, I need you to say the next three words with me, ready, go, the hidden man. Now who's talk? who are we talking about? I was almost sure in verse number one it talked about the wives. 
Are you telling me that a wife can be a man of God? Oh yeah, as long as you talk about the inner man. We all have an inner man, and it's the inner man that God is focused on. While others may see the outside, God looks on the inside. Isn't that what he told Samuel as he went to choose David? He says, look not on the height of his countenance, seeing God hath refused him, but look not on the outside as, as man seeth, but look on the heart as God seeth. And so God is concerned with what we are on the inside. And this evening, it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. And by the way, we're not adding a third bathroom, just so we're clear. But it doesn't matter. It's not age specific and it's not gender specific. Anybody in the room tonight can and should be a man of God. Let me ask you a question. What does that look like? I mean, I would hope that we have an idea, but there were people in the Bible who were very rigid in their religious adherence who were not men of God. In fact, they were sons of Belial. What does a man of God look like? Is it what religion deems a man of God or is it what God deems a man of God? And this evening we're getting God's viewpoint on what the makeup of a man of God is. So this evening, look with me, number one in verse 11, we'll see that a man of God will do this. There's four points, we're only getting to two of them tonight. And you say, Brother Andrew, thank you so much. It's Super Bowl, thank you so much. Well, the second one has like seven sub points, but don't worry about that. A man of God will, number one, flee. Verse number 11 says, But thou, O man of God, what's that next word there? Flee. And then it says, I think a man ought to know that you don't just run from everything. I don't think of, when I think of men, I don't think of somebody who runs from everything. But the Bible makes clear here that the man of God should be fleeing from certain things. And these things, as we'll come to learn, are not just things, but they are the uh, things that are produced by influences, by other men. I want you to see the things that we're to flee. Number one, we're to flee profane teachings. Verse number three, Paul, the spiritual forefather to Timothy, writes to this young man, this young man of God, and says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness... He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words whereof cometh envy and strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that, the ga- that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Oh, a man of God ought not flee from everything... But there are some things that the Lord wants the man of God to flee from. He wants the man of God to flee from profane teachings. In fact, that's what the Bible says, from such withdraw thyself. And while I feel confident in saying, as long as I can help it, there will never be from this pulpit a profane teaching. You never know what a speaker is going to talk on, but I know this, 
that the guest speakers we have at this church are not just Joe Blow who can and preach a good message. There's a lot of good preachers in this world that I would not have in this pulpit. Uh, the, the preachers we have are vetted. Uh, in most cases, we have a, a prior relationship with them. We know that they're not just going to come and, and preach a message but not live that message. By the way, you cannot separate the message from the messenger. It just does not work that way. And so I can confidently say... To the best of my ability, we will never have profane teachings taught from this pulpit and on this platform. But in my brief ministry experience, I have found that most profane teaching does not come from a public lectern. It comes from private conversations. Where one person is just talking to another person. Hey, you want to know what I read in my Bible this week? You would not believe what I found on the internet. And it's these influences that we have to guard against. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, And the things that thou hast seen, or that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Look, there are some things that uh, with technology and uh, uh, just new things, I'm okay embracing, but we don't need to embrace new doctrine. Doctrine has been passed down from the apostles. It has been passed down through many spiritual forefathers of the faith and has been passed down through our Baptist heritage. We do not need to reinvent the will of doctrine. We don't need to change the message of Jesus to make it more effective for a compromising culture. The gospel still works. That's why we sing, I love to tell the old, old story. We don't need to do anything to make it a new story because the old story still works. And I'm okay with screens and I'm okay with maybe songs that are written within this millennia, but I'm not okay with changing our faith. But the man of God must be constantly on the lookout Man of God, be careful who your children are listening to. Yes, uh, I, I don't necessarily often speak on contemporary music, and I'm not, a, I'm not the expert in that regard, but I would say that my children ought to listen to musicians who believe the same way as they do. Amen. If they're going to sing about God in the way that I know God, maybe we should agree on who God is. Amen. And I'm not saying uh, you can take it for what it is, but... If the musician is not singing about the same God that you are, what's the difference in an Islamic man singing about God? Make sure you define who God is if you're just going to sing about God. So there's that. That was not in the sermon notes. That's completely free, and I just put you all in a worse mood, and you already chose to miss the Super Bowl. I I thank you very much for that. But we must avoid profane teachings. Be careful who you're listening to, who you're hearing. You don't have to agree on everything, but you better agree on a lot of the things. And certainly we need to avoid profane teachings. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which was preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be accursed. The gospel doesn't need to change. But what these, pro, these profane teachers do, there's two characteristics that I've noticed about them and that actually aligns with Scripture. Number one, they possess advanced knowledge 
or they think they do. In fact, I think you get that in verse number five, uh, uh, or verse number four. He is proud, knowing nothing. But they're not going to tell you that. They're going to act as if some new nugget of revelation fell into their lap and they're the only one that knows about it and they're going to share this with you and you're going to get on the bottom floor of this pyramid scheme of new gospel transformation. We don't need to change it. What I've noticed in my brief time is they act as if the rudimentary things of the gospel are not sufficient for them. And they act as if, oh, I need more. I need more deep theology. I mean, they compare it to milk and meat. But you know what the Bible says? For without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And by the way, godliness there is not speaking of personal sanctification because the Bible goes on to say this. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. What is godliness referring to there? The gospel. And the apostle Paul puts it like this. Without controversy, it's deeper than I can say it. I can't explain it. I can't understand it. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to think on it. I've been under the direct revelation of Jesus Christ, and yet it still intrigues me. Paul wasn't looking for new gospel nuggets. He was content with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you really think about how great the grace of a holy God must be, to come to a world that would reject His gift, to love you no matter how unlovable you are, man, there's plenty there to think on. These profane teachers, they act as if they have a monopoly on Scripture. They do not. And in most cases, like verse number 4 says, they know nothing. They're just full of pride. Number two, the second uh, characteristic that I've noticed from most profane teachers is they profess it argumentatively. Verse number 4, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words. They're so combative in the way that they present it. You know what the Bible tells us to do? That we're to put on the whole gospel, uh, whole armor, uh, uh, armor of the Spirit. And one of the things that we're to do is shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of... Do y'all know that next word there? Peace. I'm all for confrontational preaching that says you're a sinner and you must get right with God. I'm okay with that. But what these men do, these profane teachers, is they, they are argumentative and combative in the way that they present their truth so as nobody else is to be heard. And then I like how they single out one piece of doctrine and they stand on that hill and that hill alone. In other words, a Calvinist will stand only on the sovereignty of God. They will, they will teach it. They will preach it. Uh, most of their sermons, most of their lessons will somehow in one way or another tie back to the sovereignty of God. I mean, they'll be preaching on prayer and somehow the sovereignty of God. But why would we pray for it if God already knows we should? You know, they, they, they finally get there. But my thing is, you, you try to introduce any other biblical teaching to them and they want to take you to theirs. 
Why? It's because they argumentatively possess that doctrine and really that doctrine has possessed them. So we must avoid profane teachers. Look, you can be a man of God and you can have an open heart and there are certain books that are not Baptistic that I think are maybe helpful uh, and and you might be cautious who you read but you can certainly read uh, different men from other places. But my caution is this, avoid profane teachers teachers. The man of God ought to always be on the lookout. And so, uh, in fact, in verse number four, you'll see that these men do four things to the ministry of Timothy. Number one, uh, you'll see, whereof cometh envy. The reality was Paul was warning Timothy here that these men who so-called knew a lot of scripture and and they thought that they were really high up in the kingdom of God, they would become envious of Timothy. Why? Because God would use Timothy. They could sit there and scream at a wall until they were red in the face, but the wall would never do anything. And yet God was going to bless the the influence in the ministry of Timothy. And it was from those profane teachers who were constantly critical of somebody with the right motives and doing it the right way and and not changing or compromising gospel. They would probably say something like this. Oh, he's not old enough to be used of God. What does he know after all? I've been studying my Bible for years and years and years. I've been studying my Bible since he was knee-high to a grasshopper. What that was is it was envy. It was jealousy. And Paul said from these profane teachers, they would become envious of his ministry. Number two, they would, uh, they would uh, have sh- strife. You see, it says, whereof these profane teachers come envy, there would be strife. If someone is so- sowing discord among the brethren, they cannot and are not right with God. God wants to bring his children together. The gospel unifies the church. Uh, when, you, when you put uh, tares in the wheat, that divides the church. And that's what these men are. They're sowing tares among the wheat. They are sheep in wolves' clothing as it would be. And so we've got to understand that if someone's coming into our church and they're sowing up strife, and, and it may be small initially, but I promise you, if someone's ever critical of our pastor, Dr. Gene Wolfenbarger, and I'll say this, even critical of me, do not entertain their words. Bring them to me. We'll see if we can work it out. But if someone's sowing strife in our, in our church... Do not listen to them for one second because that is not the way God works. Envy would come, strife would come, railings. They would promote reviling against Timothy and other church members and leaders. And then evil surmisings, they they would uh, be the source of evil suspicions. They would be the ones, you know, I'm not saying Brother Timothy was wrong. But did you notice the way he said the 12th instead of the 17th? Don't you think that that would be something that Brother Timothy should know? Don't you think? And it's just little things like that. But that's what these profane teachers do. And they're like David's son Absalom, just trying to win the hearts of a few. Just going to the gate and trying to win the hearts of a few. Why? Because they're trying to divide. They're trying to sow strife. And so, man of God, be on the lookout for profane teachers. Not only in our church... 
but also in your home. Who is, your, who is influencing your children right now? Who do your children listen to? Who has their ear? Because who ha- whoever has their ear, I can show you who they'll become. See, these, we are to avoid profane teachers. And these men, they would possess advanced knowledge or claim that. And they would profess argumentatively the things that they had learned. But notice, secondly, not only would they, uh, not only would they be profane teachers, they would have a profit focus. Verse number 5, the Bible says, Supposing that gain is godliness... Boy, this is so appropriate for our day and age and where we are in in Christendom today. What we've done is we've bottled up Jesus and sold him as a product that will help in every situation. We say, oh, if you're hurt, Jesus can heal. If you're broke, Jesus can make wealthy. If If you need comfort, Jesus can do that. And we sold Jesus as a product and not as a provider. We sold Jesus as goods. And what happened is when the hard times of life came, since it was just a product, guess what? They tried another brand when the thing actually came down the pike. If Jesus didn't work, well, they just went to their psychiatrist. And if their psychiatrist didn't work, well, they just went to YouTube. And if YouTube didn't work, they went to Google. And then if Google didn't work... I don't know, maybe Ask Jeeves or AOL. I'm not sure where you go, but they they just keep jumping from product to product. And what people are doing now is, is they're preaching that Jesus just fixes every situation. And by the way, I think he does. But Jesus doesn't just jump into your situation. You continue on the same path you're heading and then the situation get resolved. That's not the way it works. Until you agree with Jesus on the state you are in, nothing will be solved. So these people have a profit focus. One Bible commentator said very commonly, Christianity is presented today on the basis of what you will gain by following Jesus. Personal success and happiness, a stronger family and more secure life. These things may be true to some degree, but we must never market the gospel as a product that will fix every life problem. They have a profit focus, and I believe these men were trying to profit personally from the gospel. I mean, they were thinking, well, if I can preach in enough churches, I'll have a pretty good little bank account going on. And as long as I have a pretty good bank account, then I must be godly because God is blessing my ministry. Hey, by the way, there's a lot of wealthy people in this world who God is not blessing. Then I would pose to you the next question that seems logical. Who might be blessing them? Whose power is it in to bless people in this world or this airspace? Who can do that? Do you think that maybe the devil might be blessing some people who are not preaching a true gospel? As long as Jesus is only viewed as a source of wealth, health and happiness, it doesn't matter what he did on the cross. And so the devil promotes his, his followers and his profane teachers. And they have a prophet focus. But what, what Paul is trying to tell Timothy here is in verse number 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And if anybody knew about that, the apostle Paul did. He said, not that I res- speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. 
I know how to both be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. You say, Brother Andrew, how will I know if I'm content? When the acquisition or loss of any particular thing affects you spiritually, you're not content. If buying a new motor home affects you spiritually, you know, you can't be happy unless you have that motor home, you're not content. If, if, if losing the job you currently have right now or the income that you have right now, and man, if you just wouldn't know what to do, if you took a 30% uh, decrease in pay, if that hit you and you couldn't be happy and you couldn't be spiritually thriving in God, you're not content the way you are. Our contentment cannot be tied to success or or what the world deems good and right. Our success must only be contentment with God. In fact, the Bible says uh, uh, that we should not be covetous. It actually says, for he hath said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Our conversation should be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Our contentment is directly tied to His uh, constant abiding in our life. And so we ought to be content. So we are to flee from certain things as men of God. But not only are we to flee, but we are to follow. I like this because Paul kind of alliterated it for me. I didn't do it. If you'll notice in verse number 11, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and, what's the next word? Follow. See, I didn't even have to change anything. Paul did it for me. Flee the profane teachers, but follow after, and we'll see here our seven points, or however many there are. We'll go through them rather quickly. What are we to follow after? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Follow after these things. You know, sometimes I'll be watching the television and a product will come on TV and I'll sit there and think, man, I can't believe I did not think of that. You see, I uh, watched Shark Tank quite a bit several years ago and these people would come and they'd pitch these products and some of them were very, very simple and I would be sitting there thinking, man, how did I not think of that first? Many of you have seen the ring doorbells. They've ruined soul winning door to door, by the way. You don't know if you're talking to them or their cell phone. You're not entirely sure, but you know you can win somebody to the Lord through their cell phone. Maybe I'm not sure. But you see these ring doorbells. And if you had shown that to me, let's just say 10 years ago, I said, nobody needs to talk through their doorbell. Nobody needs that. I remember when the iPod first came out, I thought to myself, no way. Nobody needs that. We have CDs and I have a book full of them. Why would I need an iPod? I mean, you laugh at me, but we were all thinking it. What happens is we don't think that people will value certain things. And I believe that until we get to heaven, we'll never know how we should have valued things here on earth. Our life, spiritually speaking, we try to value the things that really matter. But when we get to heaven, we're going to look down and we're going to say, what was I thinking? I should have spent far more time pursuing after that. I should, I should have sp- spent much more of my life looking into that. And I think these characteristics are those things. We'll look back and we'll say, man, why didn't I think to just follow wholeheartedly after those? And we'll notice, number one, 
he says in verse number 11 that we are to follow after righteousness. Now there is a difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. And I want to make that distinction right up front. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So positionally, when you trust in Jesus' redemptive work on Calvary, you are declared righteous before God. And you are positionally righteous. But there is a practical application to righteousness, and that is simply being right with God in your everyday life. When you develop that thought, it really is... Uh, the, the doctrine is concerning the way in which a man uh, may attain a state of approval with God. In other words, in everyday life, you're to have integrity. Amen. In everyday life, you're to have virtue. You're to be pure in your motives in the way that you handle situations. You're to be upright. Yeah. It's just righteous. Righteous with God, righteous with men. We've got to be right. It's sad when Christians give a bad name to the church that they attend because they can't be righteous in public. If you're a contractor in this room, man, you witness, to, you witness the faith that you have to the folks that you deal with on an everyday basis. Your pastor ought not be knocking doors and say, Hey, I'm from Joshua Baptist Church. Hey, is that the church that old John Smith goes to? Uh, who's asking? <laughs> Did you do some work for you? Your pastor ought not be concerned about that. How about we just handle every business transaction as if we were working straight for the Lord? In fact, that's what the Bible teaches us to do. How about we uh, go to work and work like we're working for the Lord? In fact, that's what the Bible teaches us to do. And so how about we just be people that are righteous in everyday life? I think of Job. The Bible says, Has thou considered uh, my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, and perfect and upright man, and one that feareth God and escheweth evil. He was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a just or righteous man and perfect in his generations. We need men like Job and like Noah who will be righteous in their everyday dealings with people. The Bible says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Are you hungry for righteousness? Do you desire that everything you do and say tomorrow will be a righteous deed? Not only does he mention righteousness here, but he mentions godliness as something that the man of God should follow after. And somebody may be asking, what's the difference between, between righteousness and godliness? Well, righteousness, I'll say this, godliness and holiness are synonyms, not righteousness and godliness. Now, God is righteous, but God is holy. And when we say, I want to be godly or I should be godly. What we're essentially saying is, God says, be ye holy as I am holy. So when we say we want to be godly, we are claiming that promise from Scripture, that command from Scripture, we want to be like God and be holy. We say, well, what's the difference between holy? Wouldn't a holy man be righteous and a righteous man be holy? Yes. But I'll put it to you like this. Righteousness means doing the right thing. 
Holiness is doing the right thing for the right reason. You get the difference. You see, I can do the right thing, but in my spirit be thinking, man, I don't know if I want to do that. Today I was driving down the road and and a a chair flew up out of the truck in front of me. They were hauling some lawn furniture home. And and, uh, as soon as the chair flew out, there were two chairs and cushions went everywhere. And I thought to myself, I would just way rather drive on by. But the Lord said, you know, are you going to give it all? Are you going to prove your love? And so... uh, and so I, I pulled over there and I helped them load their truck. You see, there's a difference between doing the right thing and doing the right thing for the right reason. Holiness is being like God in the fact that we can actually go soul winning because we love people. It's not because we have to wrestle ourselves out of bed. I mean, I've done that before. Bible college did it every Saturday. I go, I, sure, I went soul winning. I wasn't doing it for the right reason. You say, shame on you. Well, at least I was going soul winning. <laughs> you see, you can make yourself act righteous. That's what the, the Pharisees did. They, they were righteous, no doubt about that. But they were far from holy. Because the attitudes and the motives behind the actions were way off track. Say, Brother Andrew, how do I get holiness then? How, how can I become like God in the fact that my desires would match His desires and, and my motivations would match His? Okay, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That transformation process is putting off the old man and putting on the new man, which is like... Jesus Christ. And we do this that ye may approve what is that good and acceptable perfect will of God. So notice this. How do we become more like God? By renewing and our mind being transformed in that process. So it doesn't happen overnight. I've heard the idea that it's a caterpillar to a butterfly. And I do think they are that difference in the disparity between what you look like before and after. But I do think it is a process. And you say, well, how scriptural is that? I don't know. Maybe we could visit our theme verse. But though the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. So this process does not occur overnight. You know what? I think it's biblical to go soul winning and it's righteous to go soul winning. But at first, you're intimidated to knock on the doors. You're scared that everybody behind the door may resemble much more a grizzly bear than a human. And you're scared. You just don't know. And so you kind of have to wrestle yourself to do it. But eventually, as God's word begins to develop you and transform you, I'm not saying the fear completely goes away, but I am saying... You become far more convicted in the way that you go. Because it matters not only that that person knows that Jesus loves them, but it matters that Jesus knows you love them. And so you become holy in the process of renewal daily through God's word. The key to radical and habitual godliness is daily renewal. Cannot happen any other way. We need to be renewed by God's word every day so that we'll be made like him here on this earth. And so we have righteousness. We have godliness. Notice number three, we have faith. 
That's what the Bible says in uh, verse number 11. Follow after righteousness, godliness, and faith. Faith could be defined as the conviction of the truth of anything. So what do you believe is true? Do you believe this book is true? Now, that's not a trick question. You can say amen there. I'm not going to lie. Well, then you better start acting like it. I'm not going to do that to you. Do you believe what's in this book is true? Okay, so your faith accepts this is true. And faith allows us to implement that because it is truth. It's not a story. It's not just black letters on white pages. This is God's truth from his word. And so faith recognizes that and implements that in everyday life. Is everybody with me? And faith allows us great access to God's blessings. Take your Bible to Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. Verses 32 and uh, through 39 might be some of my favorite in all of the Bible. Because as the, the passage has gone down... We've talked about Moses, we've talked about Noah, we've talked about Jacob and Joseph, uh, Abraham, we've talked about uh, even Rahab. I mean, we've talked about the, the real giants of the faith, and that's why it's called the Hall of Faith. But there's this whole unlisted section. Notice in verse number 32 what the Bible says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. You know, I feel like whoever wrote Hebrews, <laughs> I feel like whoever wrote Hebrews is here kind of doing like the, when me and preacher say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. You know, as I say, I'm done. Time, I don't have enough time to get to my last point, but I, that's what I feel like he's saying. And what shall I say more for the time would fail me. I don't have enough time to tell of Gideon. And of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Uh, that's speaking directly of, of folks who were uh, tortured for the faith when given the option, do you want to burn or do you want to uh, uh, confess that, uh, for instance, that's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll give you one more chance. You can bow now. No, 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 we're not going to bow. We're not careful to answer thee. They accepted torture rather than liberty, rather than, free, rather than freedom, that they might obtain a better uh, resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, and moreover of bonds of, and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder. There's martyrs there. They were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, torment. They were on the run from persecutions and, and they didn't have anything, so they just had, they did what, they were surviving. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report, what does that next word say? Through faith. Faith allows us to break down the barriers of human limitations. Faith allows us access to the omnipotent hand of God. Faith is what accesses those. 
only through faith. And so the man of God ought to pursue after faith. He ought to desire faith. We ought to ask God to increase our faith. You say, how, Brother Andrew, how do I get more faith? Well, the Bible says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Amen. You've got to hear and apply the Word of God to your life. Let me say this. It's so hard for us to gauge where our faith level is, isn't it? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you say your faith is right now? Honestly, we struggle to come up with an answer. We'd probably say maybe 3. You know, if like 10 is stopping the mouths of lions, I'd be like at a 2, not wanting to go near the lions, you know? We, so it's so hard to gauge our faith, but I'll put it to you like this. Your faith can be directly linked to what you're not willing to pray for. I heard it put like this recently. What if God gave you everything you asked for this week in your prayer life? Everything. How many people would be saved? Would revival happen in America? Would some mission, missionary somewhere truly be encouraged in the Lord and maybe see their ministry grow. If God gave you everything you asked for, would the world be a better place or would we just be wealthy, healthy, and okay? See, our faith is directly linked to what we're not willing to ask for. If you're not asking for revival, well, you don't believe it'll come. If you're not asking to personally be involved in someone coming to Christ, you don't believe it can happen. What is that? Well, that's the limit of our faith. We're all at different levels, right? We're all at different places. But my thing is, godly men ought to seek after faith. We ought to pursue after it. So godliness, faith, righteousness. Fourthly, the Bible says in verse number 11... Uh, it, back in, uh, it'd be hard to read Hebrews eleven eleven. So we're going to go back to First Timothy chapter six. But thou, O men of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Notice this: patience. Everyone's favorite, isn't it? How many of y'all have ever heard somebody say, "Yeah, that's why you don't pray for patience." And what we think that patience is, we think it's idleness. That is not at all what this word means. Patience is not being idle. Patience is staying faithful regardless of result. Patience is having the ability to pray for somebody for over 25 years become, before they come to Christ. Amen. That's patience. Amen. Patience is your bus route's not growing, so you keep staying faithful and doing what you're doing. Patience is your Sunday school class has seen a few members leave. You stay faithful teaching the word of God because you know that's what the right thing to do is. And, and the Bible says, uh, if we faint not, we shall reap in due time. We've got to stay faithful. Patience is not, well, you know, I just better wait on God to reveal himself. No, patience is staying actively engaged and allowing God to use you however that is. In fact, the word speaks of endurance. That's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, Thou, thou therefore endure hardness. Be patient through the hard times. 
when affliction set in and, and trials sets in, when struggle sets in, endure, persevere, and be patient and allow God to keep using you however He sees fit. Patience is so important. We don't want to pray for it. We don't want to go through the trial that it might take to get patience. But the man of God pursues after and follows after patience. See, he mentions righteousness. He mentions godliness. He mentions faith. He mentions love. He mentions patience. And then finally, this evening, he mentions meekness. Verse number 11, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Did you know that there are only two men in Scripture that are ever called meek? Only two. That ought to tell us that it might be kind of hard to get. See, David was called a man after God's own heart, but he was not called a meek man. The first person, not chronologically, but one person that was called meek was Jesus. He says in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Well, if Jesus is it, we ought to be like Jesus, right? Can we all agree on that? I mean, we may not agree on a lot of what I've said tonight, but we all ought to agree. If Jesus was it, we probably should try to be like Jesus. Jesus was meek. The other man was Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse number 3, the Bible says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men that were upon the face of the earth. I want you to take your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14, and we'll see if we can't learn something from Moses quickly before we go home and pray for some folks and read our Bibles and stuff like that. Numbers chapter 14. I read this in my devotions last night. I shared it with my family at lunch. But what's taking place in Numbers chapter 14 is Moses and Aaron have brought the children of Israel right to the precipice of entering into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb have returned with the other spies and the other spies said, we are but grasshoppers in our eyes. The land is too great for us. The people in the land are too great for us. We can't overtake it. And Joshua and Caleb are sitting there saying, oh, we can take it. We can overtake it. In fact, this is the chapter where they, they say that. It uh, starts in verse number 6 and uh, verse number 7. They spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us in to this land and give it us. But the people do not listen to Moses. They do not listen to Joshua or Caleb or Aaron. They are convinced they cannot take the promised land. And so they disobey And they turn back and they say, would to God, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. And so God says to Moses, Moses, I've had it. I've had it with this people. I'm going to take all of them off the face of the earth and I'm going to make of you a great nation. By the way, that should show us that meekness pleases God. I don't know how Moses dealt with the Israelites. Every day it seems like they had the same complaint. At least get a different fiddle if you're going to always be playing a fiddle, right? If you're always going to say something, just be be complaining about different stuff. But they're, oh, we should all just go back to Egypt. And yet Moses was so patient and meek with them. 
And now God says, Moses, I'm going to make of you a new nation. How many people do you know would have jumped right on that? Like, wow. I'm going to be Father Abraham. I'm the one they're going to make annoying bus songs about. <laughs> Could you imagine? Father Moses has many sons. Could you imagine? I mean, I would love to have a bus song made about me, right? I'm just kidding. Please don't do that, Brother Tony. Please don't do that. But a lot of people would have jumped on the opportunity, the chance to be the spiritual forefather of the great nation. The Lord said unto Moses in verse number 11, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed them among them? I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. Moses took no credit at all for it. Do you notice that? I mean, Moses had some part in it. Can we all agree? And yet Moses says, No, no, no. You were the one. Yeah, I lifted up a rod. It was your power that parted the water. Yeah, I was in front of them, but you were the one in front of me. You were always in the cloud and you were always in the pillar of fire. It was, God, it's always been you. What a lesson for us. Man, we could develop a sermon right there. And then the Bible says, when the people of Egypt hear of this, they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring those people into the land which he sware unto them. Therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. The giants were too great for God. He, he realized once he got them there that the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Jebusites and all the other Zites that are there. Oh, the Zites you'll see. All of the other Zites that are there, uh, it's just too great for even God. And so Moses says, verse number seven, and now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, the Lord is long suffering. And of great mercy and forgiving iniquity and transgression and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. You want to know why Moses was the meekest man ever, uh, at least on the earth at this time? Was because when he had the opportunity to accept responsibility for the greatest power, not only by leading the people out of Egypt, but also because God said, Moses, I am going to make of you the great nation that I will work through. Moses said, no, Lord. This thing's not about me. Lord, this is about you. Amen and your mercy, Amen. and your long-suffering, and your witness and testimony in this world. Lord, this is not about me. This is about you. When he had the ability to be powerful, he passed over that and said, God, this is your power. 
not mine. That's why he was the meekest man. It seems in churches today, people clamor over position. Well, I can't be the assistant Sunday school teacher because I want to be the Sunday school teacher. I mean, she teaches more than I do, so I, that's not fair. I need my own class. A, a bus director, I, I want this bus. I mean, this is my bus. I take care of my bus. I mean, we take personal possession of everything. By the way, it's all God's. Amen. And the meek man will realize that. A Jamaican missionary one day was asking the little boys in his class to... He was teaching on Matthew 5, 5, and he asked, Who are the meek? One little boy stood up and said, Those who give soft answers to rough questions. Meekness. When you have the ability to take on power, you pass over because it's not about you. Amen. The other day I took Caitlin hunting with me for the very first time. She was excited to go with me. We went hunting. We weren't, I guess it was deer season, but we were kind of hunting hogs, you know. We were going out to get hogs. It was like 68, 65 degrees, so a pretty warm day. I mean, I'm not taking her out there really cold. And we go to this blind, and I took an extra jacket, and she comes up with me. And, and uh, I get her in the blind, this little pop-up blind, and she's got her chair. I've got my chair, and we're comfortable. We brought her own drink and her own snacks. And I brought her iPad, of course, because that's hunting nowadays. And, and, uh, and so we're doing all this and I had built up this moment because every once in a while when I like forget my face mask at the house I carry with me like camouflage oil-based paint and what it's for is is to put on your face to kind of break up the 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 casperness of my face okay and so my face kind of glows when the sun hits it and so you take some of this and you put it on and and so the other day I came in and and the girls go you're wearing makeup and I was like, no, this is boy makeup. <laughs> this is boy makeup. So I had built this moment up. And we get to the blind, and I said to Caitlin, Caitlin, do you want to put on my boy makeup and I'll put on your boy makeup? Oh, man. She was so excited to put makeup on her dad. And so we got these, these paints. There's black, there's brown, uh, green, and kind of like a gray. She gets it all on her fingers. And I put on her cheek. I drew a K on her cheek. And she took it on her fingers and she put it on my face. She applied my makeup. That's exactly what God does for the makeup of a godly man. It's not something we do. It's something that God does in us. One stroke at a time, one brush at a time, we become the man of God we ought to be. We ought to flee certain things and we ought to follow after these godly virtues and allow God to make us the man that he wants us to be.